invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. There's more than just chapter 4 there in your worship guide. That's there for reference. But we're going to begin reading in the section, the last section there, chapter 4, verse 11. Let's go back one verse before that, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Our Father, we ask that we would hear you speaking clearly through your word. May it hit its mark this morning. May we be profoundly shaped and changed by what we hear And Lord, we need to be. We are flawed, sinful creatures, but we want to look like Jesus. And so we pray that through his spirit, real transformation would take place. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we began our study on the book of Esther, and we got to see why this book is so controversial over, it's been seen that way over the years. Um, It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God, and that's made it controversial along with some of the topics that were raised last week. As a matter of fact, it was so controversial, I mentioned Martin Luther didn't even think it belonged in the canon of Scripture. He had a problem with God not being mentioned. But as we saw last week, God not being mentioned does not mean that God is not present. That God's silence doesn't mean his absence. And actually, I think that's one of the biggest contributions that the book of Esther makes to the Bible. It teaches us that although God is hard to see, he's actually working powerfully behind the scenes Uh, through common, everyday events. And we are taught to look for him in those ways and in those places. And I think we can readily 
uh, relate to Esther because she has to seek for God's hand at work the same way we do when it's often hard to see. I think we can also relate to her uh, because we see a woman who was caught in between two worlds. She was a Jewish orphaned girl living in the pagan land of Persia. Uh, She was a girl who understood the Jewish law. She understood the scriptures. She knew who the Lord was. Yet, she also lived amidst a pagan people. And she was fascinated with that culture. And so she had a foot in both worlds. And I think many of us can relate to that. And we saw last week that Esther wasn't exactly doing the best job of having that foot in both worlds. She actually seemed to be mostly in that Persian world. She was constantly compromising herself. She broke Jewish dietary laws. She, she sleeps with a man who's not her husband. She then marries an unbeliever. So she's compromising her morals. She's doing whatever it takes just to try to fit in. And she becomes completely compliant. But this morning, we're finally going to get to see, and some of you last week were like, okay, really, you had to end it there? (laughs) We get to finally see how God does get a hold of her and transform her into a courageous woman who's finally going to grow a backbone. She's going to take a stand, and she is going to save her people. So let's see how this happens. I need to fill in the gaps between what happened last week and the text that we read this week. Esther's uncle Mordecai, he, he's outside of the king's gate. Uh, the king's gate isn't actually a, a real gate. That's just a, an idiom for, for the place of power right outside of the palace. It's where the king's officials would gather together and do official business. And so we learn here that Mordecai is actually one of the king's officials working right outside the palace. And he just so happens, another one of these coincidences, he just so happens to overhear two guards coming up with a plot to assassinate the king. So he immediately tells Esther about this. Esther reports it to the king They do a little investigation. They find out it's true. And so this plot to assassinate the king is averted. And and you would expect after this that Mordecai would be the one who is now lifted up, that Mordecai uh, gains this new prestigious position and is praised. But then this somewhat of a shock. Chapter 3 begins this way. Mordecai does not get a promotion. A man named Haman does. Haman. Uh, It's inexplicable that this Mordecai is not honored, but this man Haman is. And for reasons completely unknown, Haman is now promoted to become the second most powerful person on all of the land. And nothing happens to Mordecai. And so, so just right there, it's another one of those things. And Esther keeps doing this to us. You just step back and you're like, really? I mean, where's God in that? Is God really behind me not getting the promotion that I thought I certainly deserved? Is God really behind not only me not getting it, but that person, of all people, that person getting the promotion? And the answer is yes. God absolutely is behind those things when you seem to just scratch your head and think there is no way this is God at work. But this absolutely had to happen. 
in order for God to move his plan, for God to receive the glory he deserves. So everything is going according to God's plan. Haman, we realize, is an evil person. Uh, he's, he's an Agagite, which doesn't mean much to us, but uh, an Agagite means he was a descendant of a king, Agag. And the only reason that's important, and that every Jew would have readily recognized this, was King Agag, way back in 1 Samuel. Saul, King Saul, was commanded to kill that king because that king was incredibly wicked and evil. And King Saul refused to obey the command of the Lord. And so King Agag survived. And not only did he survive, but now you are seeing many generations later that sin coming back to haunt the people. That one sin that King Saul did many centuries earlier is now threatening the entire Jewish race. And then you have Mordecai. Mordecai is described as a Benjamite, meaning he was a descendant of the same tribe as King Saul. So you have an Agagite, and then you have this Benjamite once again coming head to head. And so Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. And I don't think he's refusing to bow just because, you know, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you refuse to bow before an idol. I think he's refusing to bow to that man. It's some of the Hatfields and McCoys here. This is bad blood that's been going back for many, many years. And when Haman comes through and everybody's supposed to bow to him, Mordecai's like, I will not bow to that man. And because Haman refuses to bow, I mean, Mordecai refuses to bow, Haman does in a little investigation, finds out Mordecai's a Jew and says, I don't want to just kill Mordecai. I want to kill every Jew. I'm going to wipe out the entire race. And so he proposes this plan and he gives it to King Ahasuerus. And he says, hey, uh, without being too specific, you don't need this many details, but there's a certain people group out there that are uh, threatening our way of life. They, they don't really obey our laws. They're really not our people. Um, they don't contribute anything to our society. So let's fix a date and let's have them all exterminated and let's plunder them. And just to sweeten the deal, here's 10,000 talents of silver, which is 300 tons of silver. That's also two-thirds of what the Persian Empire would bring in for an entire year in taxes. So we see Haman promising a whole lot. King Ahasuerus, he's like, well, you had me at silver. Um, and he, doesn't, he doesn't think too much about this. He doesn't ask any questions, and he goes through with it, signs it into the law. Before we throw King Ahasuerus under the bus, it's actually how a lot of us deal with temptation. Temptation comes, gives us a completely unrealistic promise. And we're like, it's best just not to ask questions. <laughs> let's, just, let's just do this. And we believe this unrealistic promise. And so that's what King Ahasuerus does. And so now all of the Jewish people are under this termination date. Genocide will happen a few months from now. So when Mordecai hears this, he, he immediately runs to Esther and he begs her, do something. You got to do something. You see, Esther's now in this unique position. She's no longer just a little Jewish orphan girl. She's risen up in power. 
She, she's risen up to one of the highest positions in the land. She is now in the highest social circles. She's in this inner ring of power in the Persian empire. And Mordecai is saying, I need you to leverage that. Leverage it. Do whatever you have to do to save the Jewish people. Use your standing. Use your influence. Use your social status. Use, pull whatever strings you have to pull. But you got to get the king's ear and he got to get them, him to change this law. Now, if I, if I can generalize here, what we are seeing is that God is calling his people who were in a position of privilege and a position of power to do whatever it takes to help those who are oppressed. God often does this throughout scripture. He often tells us you need to jeopardize the position that you were in in order to help others. You need to leverage whatever social capital you have, leverage whatever money you have, use whatever connections you have, use whatever is at your disposal to be a voice for those who are oppressed and to stop injustice. It's a challenge for us. It is a relevant challenge for us all. It's easy to feel safe within the walls of the palace and to let the rest, the rest of the world and whatever happens out there just happen. But God challenges the people of privilege living within those walls to reach out. You gotta just say personally, as I've been studying this, I've, I've been challenged. Lots of questions just come flooding my head. Um, questions like, have there been times in my life or am I actively doing this now where I would throw people under the bus just to save my own skin? Or, or do I step up and use my position to take a hit for another person? Which do I do? Do I readily get involved and step into somebody's marriage crisis, even though I know it's likely going to cost me my time, my emotional energy, might even cost me a friendship? Am I willing to call in that favor that I've always had on reserve, but to actually cash in that favor, not for me, but to help somebody else who I know is in need? Am I actively leveraging all that I have at my disposal to help those who are oppressed or in need? It's a probing question. It was a tough one for Esther. Make no mistake, I mean, she, she understood what Mordecai was asking her. Mordecai was, was loud and clear about this. The problem is Esther did not get to the position she was in by ever taking a stand on anything. She didn't take risk. She didn't become queen by ruffling the feathers of other people or showing any sort of background. She rose to the position that she is in, the, the highest position a woman could have in the land, not by imposing her will, but by yielding to everybody's will and power, by being completely compliant. The only way she could have ever made it to this position in the palace is by compromising her morals, not by taking a stand. And she has to have in her mind, I mean, look what happened to Queen Vashti. 
Look what happens to the one who actually did take a stand. And so it was tough. And, and, and so Esther, she sends word to Mordecai and she basically says, I want you to know that's a really bad idea. <laughs> it's just a really, really bad idea uh, for obvious reasons. But on top of that, I need to remind you that even though I'm the queen, I can't just walk into the king's presence. You're, you're not allowed to go in there unless you are invited. And actually to go in there without an invite is an immediate capital punishment unless the king grants a pardon and he extends the scepter. Only seven people in the entire kingdom were allowed to go into the king's presence without being invited and the queen was not one of them. So to approach the king without an invitation would have been an enormous risk. And so she reminds Mordecai, you, you, you know this, you know the law and what you're asking me to do. But let me tell you just one other thing. He hasn't invited me in the last month. Can I just say, you know, the king's not sleeping alone at night. He's inviting other people consistently into his presence. But Esther seems to have lost favor we actually read earlier that the king had assembled a second harem. So he's already been gathering hundreds, if not maybe a thousand other young virgins to come. Possibly he's already thinking replacement for Esther as queen. So she's telling Mordecai, I don't think I have the heartstrings to pull. I don't think I have that. This seems to be like a disastrous plan that the odds are stacked against her. So far, there is nothing that would indicate that an uninvited entrance into the throne room would go well. Persian law forbids it. The concealment of her true identity complicates it. The impulsiveness of the king threatens it. And then the loss of favor with the king seems to just write certain doom. So she says, you have no idea what you're asking. And Mordecai says, I do. Do it. I, I do. I know exactly what I'm asking. Do it. And then he gives this remarkable argument. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Basically says this, that if she doesn't risk losing her position within the palace or even possibly her own life, then essentially she's a dead person walking. She's dead already if she doesn't do this. He, he argues that although she thinks she's safe, she thinks she's so protected, they will eventually sniff her out. They will eventually find her and kill her. And he says, like, and if you don't step up, actually, I, I think that God's going to deliver us through another savior and another person's going to rise and deliver us. And then the Jews are going to sniff you out and you'll be killed as a traitor. So basically, if you don't help us, Either the Persians will kill you or the Jews are going to kill you. You don't help us, you're dead. It's a heavy-handed argument, all right? It's, uh, it's persuasive. But that's what Mordecai tells her. Now, we obviously are not in the same position as 
Esther. But I do think we can apply Mordecai's argument to us and to our lives. If we generalize his argument here, it would go something like this. If you are not willing to give up your place of privilege, if you are not willing to give up whatever your palace is out of fear of losing it all, you've already lost. You're dead already. We could say it this way. Whenever your identity becomes wrapped up in something that will eventually perish, you're going to perish with it. The key is you have to wrap your identity around something that will never perish. You have to wrap your identity around the Lord. If your identity is wrapped up in your money, you will perish. If your identity is wrapped up in your social status, you will perish. If your identity is wrapped up in anything other than the Lord, you will perish. Mordecai's words are actually remarkably close to the Lord's. When the Lord says this, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what is a man willing to give in exchange for his soul? And I can almost picture Mordecai saying that to Esther. What have you given in exchange for your soul? Look at you. Look at your position. Look at your privilege. What have you given in exchange for your soul? Let me ask you, if called upon by the Lord, can you throw away whatever your palace is? Can you freely give your money away? Can you risk your social standing? Can you jeopardize that promotion? Because hear me, if you are not willing to throw away your palace. It's no longer a palace, it's a prison. You're in bondage to that. Mordecai argues with Esther that if she is not willing to risk it all, she's dead already. Uh, But then he says this one final thing. He, He no longer says this negative thing. He decides to go positive here. And I think that this one thing here actually gives her the courage to do the right thing. So earlier it's do this or you die. Now he goes a different direction. And this is the focal point of the entire book. He says, Esther, who knows? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And when Esther hears these words, For the first time, she becomes the subject of a verb and not the object. She actually springs into action and she does stuff. The word come there. Who knows whether you have not come. In in Hebrew, it's it's the hiffel tense. It's a past tense, passive tense. You could translate it brought. Who knows whether you have not We're not brought to this position, brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. 
He's saying, Esther, do you realize that the reason you were in the position that you were in is by sheer grace? You did not earn it. You could have never in a million years planned for it. You were brought, carried to this position that you were in. Esther, you had, you had no role in being born in Persia. You just happened to be born in Persia. You played no part in being born a beautiful woman. That beauty was given to you. You had no part of Queen Vashti being removed and the king needing to replace her. You had played no part in being just the right age to be selected to be part of this harem and possibly a new king. Everything you have, this position that you're enjoying, is yours by sheer grace. And we need to understand that, that everything we enjoy, everything we have is by the sheer grace of God. I know some of you are thinking, okay, yes, I mean, I'm not going to deny that's by grace, but also work really hard to get in the position I'm in. And I'm not denying your work, but I'm asking that your work is futile apart from grace. You had nothing to do with being born in the 21st century. Nothing to do with being born in a country with such enormous freedoms and opportunities. Nothing to do with whatever the current job market was around you or the economy or, or all the connections that were needed to perfectly line up to get you in the place where you are. For those of you who are married, you might think you worked really hard to find that spouse and to marry them you had nothing to do with that person even existing. That person existed because God declared that that person would exist. Not only did they exist, but they were born in the same time period as you. They were born in, in the same location as you. And for some reason, they actually found you attractive and married you. It's the grace of God. So the, re the reality is that throughout history, there have been people who are smarter than you, have worked harder than you, are better looking than you, and don't have near the opportunity or the placement as you. We're here because the grace of God has brought us here. Whatever your position, you are there because you have been placed, brought, carried by God. And if you're brought to this position you are in, hear me, what that means is that you have a purpose. You have a purpose. Grace is so transformative because when we really understand grace, we understand that now we have a purpose in life. Without an understanding of grace over our lives, we're always going to struggle with meaning. What do our lives mean? What are we here for? Because if you believe you are who you are simply because of all of your hard work and all of your effort, then you are going to have to try and come up with meaning. You're going to have to try to give yourself meaning. So all of your effort to accumulate wealth, why? You've got to define, well, why am I? Why am I working so hard? Why am I accumulating wealth? Why do I long for such social standing? Why? And Esther has already told you that wealth, power, beauty are empty. But if you see you've been brought here, that you are where you are by grace, that you were created and brought by God and put in the position you're in, then you realize, 
I have a purpose. My life actually has meaning. God has got a plan for me. And when you realize that God has a plan for you, it begins to free you up to act. If you really understand the position you're in was given to you by God, you're not just going to sit and wallow in self-pity and always wondering, what am I doing here on this little speck of dust in the universe? You know, realize that God has something extraordinarily, extraordinary for me to do, perhaps at this moment. When Esther realizes here that she was not in the position she was in because of the powers of Persia or because of the powers of King Ahasuerus or because of her own powers, but by the power of the unseen force there that is God, she springs into action. I love it. Little, little spineless Esther begins barking out orders. And she begins making all these commands. She takes charge and she tells Mordecai, she goes, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm going to go to the king. And if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. If I lose my job, I lose my job. If I get passed over for the promotion, I get passed over for the promotion. But I will not compromise my morals. If I lose friends because I won't join in their racial slurs, or whoever they're making fun of, I lose my friends. If I lose my money in order to help those in need, I, I, I lose my money. If I lose the respect of my peers because I choose to identify with the poor and the oppressed and the outcast, then I lose the respect of my peers because I was brought to be in this position for such a time as this. You are who you are by the grace of God. So the question is, do you see yourself as brought? Or are you a self-made man? Now, when we come to understand and see this story of Esther, there is a slight danger here that we would really be inspired to go and be all braveheart, go and try to make a difference on our own. Esther is an example for us. She is an example, but if she's only an example, um, she's going to squash you. <laughs> she, she should inspire us, but she's not just an inspiration. What we need to understand is that Esther, at her very best, is not our example, but she's a sign pointing us to somebody greater than her. We need to understand this about all the Old Testament saints. If we, if we look at David and we see him slaying Goliath and we're like, well, there's our example. That's great. Well, it's going to crush you because how many of you slayed, you know, Goliaths or giants? If you see Joshua and you're like, wow, he's, he's a great example. Now I need to just, you know, find a city, march against it and the walls come crumbling down. Like, that's, that's going to crush you. They are some examples for us, but, but mostly they're assigned to us. And so people like David, people like Joshua, people like Moses, they all had tremendous flaws. And those flaws are a sign or a mirror saying, this is who you are. That's how we identify with them. 
David as the adulterer, David as the murderer, Moses as being disobedient. They're a mirror or a sign pointing to who we really are. But when they do something extraordinary, when they do take that great act of faith, when they do save their people, they're also a sign, but not pointing to us, pointing to Christ and our need for a savior like that. So Esther, fallen Esther, yes, she is a sign or she's a mirror pointing to all of us. Esther at her best, yeah, she's, she's an example, but more than that, she's a sign pointing us to Christ. And when we see that, we will be changed. As, as we're going through this, does her story sound any, in any way familiar to you? Can you think of somebody else who is willing to leave a palace in order to come and be identified among a judged people? Can you think of anyone who is described as boldly approaching the throne in order to intercede on behalf of a people who stand condemned? Can you think of anybody else who was willing to give their life for the salvation of the people? Esther points us to Jesus, but Jesus is the greater Esther. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus left his position of power in heaven. He came down to earth in order to identify with sinful people. And when he did it, he didn't just take on the possibility of perishing. He knew he was going to perish. He said, I must perish, so I will perish. But he perished so we wouldn't have to. And that's the good news of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life. And now Jesus, he's rose again and now he goes to the throne and he makes intercession on our behalf. We are saved because of Jesus. And when you understand that grace, the grace that Jesus has shown, it transforms you in a way that no example that Esther could ever set could. It gives your life real meaning when you realize that Jesus didn't come to this world, suffer and die so I could have a purposeless existence. He did this to bring me to himself and to place me to the position I'm in because he has a plan to use me. Grace sets us free to leave the palace and to serve others. Grace sets us free to, give a new, to have a new life. If you would pray with me. Father, whatever the palaces is, are that we enjoy so much, bring them to our mind right now. And Father, through your spirit, give us the strength and the courage to lay those things down. Lord, that strength, that courage only comes by understanding how your grace has been lavished upon us. We're not where we are by accident. You have brought us to this place. So we thank you for your lavish grace. We thank you for your salvation. And we thank you for the book of Esther and how it ultimately points us to you, Jesus, who did perish so that we might never have to. 
We pray this in your name. Amen.